Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. My wife and I weren't here, well, my whole family wasn't here last week. We were in Lancaster, but we watched the 9 a.m. service in our hotel room. We pulled it up, and we were watching uh, John Eric do the announcements, and John Eric preach, and uh, I think Rachel led worship. Did Rachel lead worship? Yeah. So we were watching that, and then uh, like the stalkers that we are, we were like, wonder, wonder who's there? So Kendra's like, well, I can check the check-ins for the kids. So on her phone, she pulls up the the church center, uh, the planning center app, and she's like looking at who, what kids have checked in. And I said, well, I can pull up the security cameras. So I got this camera. And uh, so we don't not only watch the, the service, we were stalking all of you. Uh, so just so you know, very creepy. I don't think anyone's doing that right now, but... Hopefully. Okay, so that's what we did. Well, you know, it is, I know that sounds funny, but actually we, we, even when we're not here, we miss being here. So we literally pulled up three devices so that we could be as present as we possibly could. Um, And we turned off the Disney Channel for a little bit of time. Uh, You know, we have kids, so. All right, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the story of the triumphal entry. And uh, this is the story that is traditionally looked at on Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. The story of the triumphal entry is the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. We'll get into that in a moment. But every year about this time, we look at this story. It's in Matthew. It's in Mark. It's in Luke. Uh, we look at this story. So it's, it's kind of become, to many people, familiar. And it's good to be familiar with the Bible, but there is a danger that comes with that because when it gets too familiar, you think you know everything. And then you don't really take the time to investigate every passage or every aspect of a passage. Thank you, May. That was illumination uh, here. It's it's a dark day. Uh, Not a lot of sunlight today. So before we look into this story, I want to get our minds in the right place for this. So John Eric's going to throw up on the screen a picture of the presidential motorcade, okay? I don't know which president was the president in this picture, but this is the presidential motorcade. You've probably seen this on TV, right? This is, sometimes it's in movies. The presidential motorcade is actually a pretty interesting, intricate uh, event. They say that this is almost more complicated than getting Air Force One up in the air and taking off because the presidential motorcade consists of no less than 12 different vehicles. There are motorcycles that go ahead of the president when he's traveling. Did you know he can go make a 30-minute trip in eight minutes in the, in the motorcade? Because there, it's almost as if the speed limit doesn't apply to everyone. Because uh, motorcycles go ahead of him. There are two armored limousines that are identical because they don't want you to know which one that the president is in. So there's one and then there's a decoy. There are some uh, SUVs full of secu- uh, uh, secret service personnel. You can see a few of them walking alongside. There are police cars and then there's one vehicle that is classified. No one knows what happens in that vehicle. It's, we don't even know. I, think, I personally think it's a transformer. Uh, and that if we ever need it, it can turn into a transformer. But there's at least a dozen vehicles, and 
the timing of everything, it's almost like uh, uh, I read an article in Popular Mechanics described it as a ballet because it's so intricately planned and thought out. Every vehicle, every movement has a meaning to it so that when the president comes into town or travels through an area, uh, every bit of it is full of meaning. I remember a couple, this was well, probably six or seven years ago when uh, President Obama was in Philadelphia and they shut down 95 so that he could come up 95. It, it paralyzed the whole city for a little while, for a couple hours, just to, to get him through town. And so the presidential motorcade kind of provides a little bit of context for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry is Jesus coming into Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. Before, you know, Obviously, he's crucified and then resurrected, and he continues to live. So when I say last week of his life, I hope you understand, I mean the last week of his uh, ministry for those three and a half years in Galilee, Judea, and uh, Jerusalem. But there were traditions and customs that were common for a king to enter a city that we see in the story of the triumphal entry. So for instance, just like we have a presidential motorcade and there's two limousines and a couple motorcycles and everything has its purpose, when a king came into a city, there were things that they did for the king as he entered. One of the first things is the king always was riding on an animal. The king didn't walk into the city. The king, if he came to take over, he rode a horse, but if he came in peace, he rode a donkey. So you could tell just by what the king was riding, what business he was up to when he came into the city. It was really common for the followers of the king, for the people that worked for the king, to put their coats or leafy branches on the ground or on the horse or on the donkey so that the king's uh, you know, animal that he was riding on could go over, would not have to put his feet on the dirty ground, but he would go on coats or leafy branches. It was common to use palm branches, which is why we provide every year these palm fronds for you. Uh, this is just a way for us to kind of like wrap our heads around a little bit what was going on on Palm Sunday. We'll get to these in a moment. Another thing that they would do is they would always announce the king. So and so, such and such king is entering into the city and everyone should honor him. And in some cases, everyone should fear him. There's actually a Greek word, parousia which refers to the return of a king into a city, and the New Testament uses the word parousia to describe Jesus' return someday. Now, Jesus is going into Jerusalem. This is the capital of Israel. This is the Jewish capital. I'm going to read uh, from Luke 19 in a moment. We're going to do this in three sections here. But when this takes place, when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, it's the last week of his life, he's about to die. He knows he's about to die. What would you do if you knew you had one week to live? You'd probably dedicate your remaining 168 hours to things that were important to you, right? Well, that's what we see in this week here that starts with this entry and ends with his crucifixion. That's the final week that we're looking at. He dedicates his time to the things that he finds important. This takes place during a two or three hundred year period of revolts. There, there were Jewish 
revolts popping up all the time. Because remember, the Jewish people were living under Roman occupation. They were not in charge of their own government or their own fate. So every now and then, someone would pop up and try to lead a revolt. Before Jesus, there was something called the Hasmonean Revolt, or if you've ever heard of the Maccabees and the story of Hanukkah, uh, not, yeah, Hanukkah, not Hanukkah. Yeah, Hanukkah, yeah, okay. I'm a Christian, so... Uh, that happened, that comes from the Maccabees that were just maybe 150, 160 years before Jesus. Um, even we know that Jesus, when he's on trial, there's a guy next to him named Barabbas. What was Barabbas in tri- on trial for? Leading a revolt. Even after Jesus, historically, there's something called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which is another rebe- so rebellion against Rome. It, there was all these little rebellions popping up. People would declare themselves the king or the rightful ruler of the Jewish people, and Rome would have to come in and squash that. And in the middle of that, Jesus is riding in on a donkey, and everyone's saying he's the king. Does that make, like, you picking up on the context why this might be important. It's a little weird, and I want to illustrate it this way because I want you to understand some of the dynamics that are taking place in the last week of Jesus' life. There's the Roman government, but then there's also the Jewish religious community, and they both have different laws and different rules. Here's an example. A few years ago here in Philadelphia, there was a church that was going through a really, really rough time, and the people on their governing board, this is a true story, I'm not making this up, the people who were on the governing board didn't really like the pastor, and the pastor didn't really like the governing board, and they were fighting. And each group claimed that they were the rightful leaders of the congregation. And so on one Sunday, the pastor changed the locks and held a communion service and only let in the people that, he, that were faithful to him. But the governing board said, well, actually, we're the rightful leaders, so they called the police, and the police showed up, and this is what they had to tell the police, they're not letting us take communion. What law do you think a police officer has to enforce that has to do with communion? What can a police officer, communion is a spiritual practice, right? Churches have their own views and perspectives. So bringing a police, I mean, what, what's a judge going to do if that goes to trial? You broke the communion law, state statute, you know, 018284. When you start asking the civil government to intervene in religious rules and laws, you get this headache, So when Jesus said he was the Messiah and people got worked up, the Roman government was like, that Messiah thing is yours. Don't bother us with that. And when people say, oh, he claimed to be God, he should die for that. The Roman government is like, don't bring us your religious arguments. We don't want that. But when Jesus is declared king, well, they had a king. Rome had a king. And so now the civil government gets involved. This is not just a religious dispute. This is actually, could this be a a revolt? Now, let's look at the story. It's in Luke chapter 19. We're going to read it in three phases. I'm going to start in verse 29 and read through verse 38. When he, Jesus, approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you there as you enter, 
you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat and untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Okay, check that off. Did it exactly as you're supposed to. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. You guys seeing the, con- like the context, what's going on here? As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now I shared with you some of the contextual background here that a king when he entered a city would ride on an animal and if he was coming to take over, he would ride a horse, but if he was coming in peace, he rode a What's Jesus riding? A donkey. Okay, so I'll, I'll, if you're just a modern observer, you're thinking, okay, Jesus is coming in peace. He's not coming for a violent overthrow of the government uh, of Rome. And what did they throw on the ground on, before Jesus? They threw their coats, and it's not in uh, Mark, uh, sorry, it's not in Luke, but it's in Matthew and Mark that they waved what? palm branches, just like we've given you this morning, although what they would have waved would have had about 50 of these on it. They would have had whole branches, not little individual palm. This is like a leaf. They would have had branches. Uh, They would have waved that, and they sang songs, and if you read this in Matthew and you read this in Mark, you can actually piece together the song is a little bigger than what we have in Luke. There's more to it. There's more verses uh, to this song, but what they read here is, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So this is turning into a little bit of a raucous scene here, right? I mean, just so you know, in Jerusalem, this, it's the week of Passover, Okay, so it's a big religious festival. Lots of people are coming into Jerusalem, but only one of them is getting songs sang, right? Only one of them is getting praise and adoration uh, given to him. Everyone else is on foot, just they're religious pilgrims going into the city, but Jesus is being honored by his disciples. They put Jesus on a colt just like a king. They put their coats down and waved branches just like a king. They literally shouted, blessed is the king. They're expecting Jesus to come and be the king. And they're right. But in some ways, they're wrong about how it's going to look. They're expecting that at some point in the next couple days, Jesus is going to take the throne of Israel, maybe not the whole Roman world, but at least their country, that he's going to be restored to power in Jerusalem, and right then and there, he's going to rule over them in the flesh. So they're right. He's the king. He's entering the holy city, their capital. They're right about all of that, which is why it is good and right for them to praise and wave the branches. But we do know this, and and the disciples get thrown under the bus every year. The same ones that sang Hosanna and waved palm branches all said, I don't even know the guy within six days. Right? I mean, we know that about the disciples that come this Good Friday in, in five or six days when we gather, 
We're not going to be looking at Hosanna, Hosanna. We're going to be reading Jesus said, I don't know him, or not Jesus, Peter said of Jesus, I don't know him. We're going to read that John ran off, ran so fast that he was basically in his underwear he ran off. He's like, I got to get out of here. Peter pulled out a sword to try to defend Jesus when he was arrested. Jesus is tried, beaten, crucified, dies. Just a few people around him. I don't know where all those 5,000 people that he fed with the fish and the loaves went, but they've abandoned him at this point. So the same people that are singing Hosanna, waving the palm branches, he's the king. When it starts to turn out not exactly the way they thought this was going to go, they're out, right? So it's understanding the reaction of the crowd on on Good Friday, uh, not Good Friday, Palm Sunday today, it is a little complicated because they're right, but they're also a little off. So, you know, did they understand the way it was going to go down? No, they didn't understand the way it was going to go down. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is still not the king entering in peace to the holy city. They're right about all of that. But as time goes on, it doesn't work out the way they exactly think it's going to. Does that make sense? So it's, it makes me think that sometimes praise and worship is a little messy because you can really praise God and, and get into it and give your full heart to it and things still might not work out the way you think they're gonna work out, right? But that doesn't mean that the worship you gave was wrong. Does that make sense? Okay, so like, let's not, evaluate and judge people's worship based on the results necessarily. It's just because you don't know the future doesn't mean you can't extravagantly worship God for what you do know in the present. Okay? So the crowd, they're worshiping Jesus. They're, they, they seem to have the agenda of there's going to be a revolution and there actually is a revolution. But it does not go the way they think. They think there's going to be a revolution in the city of Jerusalem and there's going to be a new Jewish king. That's what they think. There is a revolution. It is not limited to Jerusalem. Is the revolution of Jesus active today? It's actually bigger and longer lasting than they ever thought because they were only thinking in the natural. They weren't thinking about the spiritual impact that would take place and the role that Jesus would play as the centerpiece of all of human history. So they weren't wrong to worship Jesus this way. It was actually, they're actually right. This is the king coming into the holy city, even though it didn't work out exactly the way they thought. So that's the the disciples. Let's look, uh, just two verses on the Pharisees here, uh, how the Pharisees respond to this. So after all this The crowd's shouting, they're waving palm branches. Well, the Pharisees don't like this. They're like the people that call the police when the neighbors are too loud. Me. Uh, This is what the Pharisees say in verses 39 and 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Rachel said, we don't want to be beat by some rocks. We don't want the rocks to outsing us. This is actually why many Christians were opposed to rock music. That's, that's a joke. <laughs> For those watching at home, there's a lot of laughter, like tons of laughter in the room. 
Let me wait for it to calm down. Calm down, everybody. Okay. Joke. That was a joke. But the Pharisees do not like this. The Pharisees do not like that everyone is getting excited about Jesus coming in because Jesus is a threat to their power. They, they've had this religious game on lockdown for a, for a good long time. They've managed to make everybody jump through their hoops, wait in their lines, go to them for help. You know, you, you need us to sign off if you're going to go to heaven. You need us to make a, a judgment or evaluation if your sacrifice is worthwhile. And Jesus comes and disrupt, disrupts that whole system. Jesus goes not to the religious people to make called disciples out of them. He goes to the blue collar. He calls the fishermen, the tax collectors. He spends his time with prostitutes and sinners. All the people uh, that, that uh, Jesus healed could not be healed by the Pharisees. I think I might have mentioned this a couple weeks ago that there was a man who was like sick for 30 some years or something like that and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath and they were upset that he healed him on the Sabbath but they couldn't wrap their head around the fact that they had missed about 10,000 other opportunities. They couldn't heal him on 10,000 other days. They get mad at Jesus for healing him on one day because it happened to be a religious holiday to them. So... The Pharisees do not want to see Jesus come into power because that's going to mean a reduction in their power. It's going to mean people are going to, uh, they're going to be confronted because what they've been doing has been controlling. It has not been setting people free. If anything, it's been bringing people into greater bondage. They don't want to see Jesus. They also don't want to deal with the Roman government because they know that if the Jewish people are associated with another uprising, another rebellion, it's not going to be good for them. And I'm going to tell you a few stories later about how this worked out. So the Pharisees want Jesus to quiet the crowd. They actually, why do they tell, the, they tell Jesus, hey Jesus, can you quiet the crowd? They can't quiet the crowd and they know it. They have to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, could you please quiet down your followers? They'll listen to you. They won't listen to us. And Jesus says, if they're quiet, the stones will cry out. That's crazy. But I believe it. Because I think we see creation reflecting the glory of God one way or another. We see it in sunrises and sunsets. We see it in mountains. We see it in childbirth. And we see it in all these, you know, like nature and creation. We see God's glory reflected. So it, I guess it's not a surprise to me to hear that rocks could cry out. But if they do, that means we're not doing our job, right? If they cry out, while that would be incredible to hear, that means that we are not doing our job. So Jesus says the stones will cry out. Now, all right, we've talked about Jesus coming in on a donkey. They wave palm branches. They sang a song. The Pharisees objected. You guys, have we checked all the, the Palm Sunday boxes? You got, all the, you got your sun, Palm Sunday itch scratched, covered all the bases? Because we're about to take a real hard left turn. We're about to go a totally different direction here. After Jesus says that the stones will cry out, picking up in verse 41. First of all, Jesus is on this donkey potentially two miles He's not like right at the gates yet. He's, it says he's in Bethphage and Bethany, right? So maybe like two miles out. 
So a little bit of a walk. If you were walking it, it might take 30, 40 minutes. When he approached the city of Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave, you, uh, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is during the triumphal entry. During Jesus' ride on the donkey into Jerusalem, when he sees the city, he starts to cry. Everyone else is happy, joyful, cheerful, but Jesus is crying. I wish we had an account somewhere. Jesus, why are you crying? Of course, we already know. I don't know who hears him say this thing about Jerusalem. I, I don't know who, I mean, obviously it's written in the gospel, so someone heard it or got Jesus to explain it later during his final week on earth. Uh, not his final week on earth, but his final week in the, his human body. In verses 43 and 44, he says, the days will come upon you. He's speaking to the city of Jerusalem when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. This is not a metaphor. This is a prophecy. They'll throw up a barricade and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another. In saying this, Jesus is prophesying that the city of Jerusalem is going to get attacked someday. And it happened. A.D. 70, the Roman, uh, the Roman uh, general, Titus, attacked Jerusalem and destroyed it. And Jesus predicted it roughly 40 years in advance. He told them that this is going to happen. They're going to tear down the city. They're going to set up barricades against you, and they did. They're going to tear down the walls, and they did. In fact, this is crazy. During the siege on Jerusalem in AD 70, some of the walls fell down in the middle of the night without them even trying to knock them down. Who do you think did that? One of the towers just collapsed in the middle of the night. I want to read some of the description. This is a, there's a old Jewish historian from the first century, would have been alive during this, named Josephus. I, every year this time I pull out old Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He was not a follower of Jesus, but he wrote about Jesus. Jesus is not just in the Bible. Ancient historians wrote about Jesus. Now, they didn't necessarily believe he was God, but even, even Josephus says there was a man who had called the Christ. He was known for doing a lot of miracles, and he was alive after he was dead. You don't even have to limit yourself to the four Gospels. Just pull up ancient history. That's what makes Jesus different. That's how we know Jesus is not a myth. He's a historical figure. He actually lived, right? The, the, the gods of the Egyptians weren't real people. The god, uh, you know, uh, Ra, the sun god of Egypt, isn't a real person. Uh, Zeus, the, the Greek god, was not a real person. Jesus was a real person. All these other ones, they're stories, but no history. Jesus has story and history. So Josephus 
in this particular section, I just want to read, he describes what was going on in the city of Jerusalem leading up to and during this siege in AD 70. This, Jesus prophesied this. Josephus says, the noise of those that were fighting was incessant, both by day and by night. So they're, they're fighting all day and it's incessant noise, nonstop noise of fighting. But the lamentations or the crying of those that were mourning was louder than the fighting. There was never any occasion for them to stop their crying because the calamities came perpetually one upon another. As soon as one crisis ended, another crisis began. That sounds familiar to me. Josephus continues, now he's talking about the actual siege. Uh, and during the siege, this took four years, this wasn't overnight. They just barricaded the city and let everyone starve to death. And when everyone either starved and surrendered or was too weak to fight, then they went in. So this is how it went. In the city, during this four-year period, it was now a miserable case and a sight that would justly bring tears into our eyes. Jesus had tears in his eyes 40 years in advance. Josephus is saying if we saw it, we would cry. Jesus did see it. The famine was so hard Children pulled the very morsels of food that their fathers were eating out of their mouths. If their dad was eating food, the kids would go into the mouth, grab the chewed food, and take it. What was still worse, so did the mothers do to their infants. Mothers would take food out of the infant's mouth and eat it. When those that were the most dear were perishing, they were not ashamed to take from them the very last drops that might preserve their lives. When someone was close to death, they just took their food because they're going to die soon. When they saw that any house had its doors and windows shut, that was a signal that the people inside had gotten some food. So people would break open the doors and run in and take the pieces of food that they were eating almost out of their own throats and by force. Any old men who would hold on to the food were beaten. If the women hid the food in their hands, their hair was ripped out. They picked up children from the ground as they hung on to their food and shook them until they dropped the food on the floor. And they were even worse, more barbarously cruel to those who stopped them from coming in the door and had swallowed the food before everyone entered. So if they were trying to break into your door and you stopped them and hurried up and swallowed your food, it doesn't say what they did, it just says they were barbarously worse or cruel. This is what Jesus saw when he was coming into Jerusalem. This is gonna happen to you in 40 years. And he wept over it. This is not what they were thinking when they were singing Hosanna, waving palm branches. Why did Jesus see this? What led to this? It's in verse 44. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. When Jesus says you didn't recognize the time of your visitation, he's not saying, hey, I, I came to hang out with you and you, know, you were late. The word visitation in Greek means inspection. This is not Jesus coming to have tea and visit and and 
This is not a hospitality call. This is a inspection. Jesus is saying, I came to inspect you and you weren't prepared. I came to see what the spiritual climate in your city was and it was bad. I came to inspect you and you were unprepared. This is like, you know, taking your car for its inspection, thinking everything is fine and there's $2,000 worth of work that needs done. This is going to the dentist for the first time in five years, thinking you're good and he says you have 13 cavities. This is going to your doctor for a physical the first time in a decade thinking you're fine because you've gotten used to the sickness, you've gotten used to the pain, you've gotten used to the weakness. And the doctor says, you have some really severe medical issues. And that's what we do with sin. We get used to it. Well, I've always had that. I just kind of learned to deal with it. And then finally the doctor says, yeah, well, that's not normal. It's not healthy. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. They're so used to the state of the city. And Jesus says, I'm inspecting it. And you are not prepared. And because of that, in a generation, 40 years, this is all going to be torn down. And you did not know the time of your inspection. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is not a visit to hang out. This is an uh, inspection, an investigation, or an audit. And where does Jesus go first when he goes in? And and I'm not going to read this, but it's the next two verses. You know this story probably. Where does Jesus go first when he comes in the city? The temple. He doesn't go to the IRS. He doesn't go to the government. He goes essentially to the people of God. This would be like if Jesus came into Philadelphia. He wouldn't go to City Hall. He wouldn't go to Lincoln Financial Field. He'd come to the church. And he'd say, let me see what's going on in these churches. Well, Jesus, after he came into Jerusalem, he's weeping on his way in. The first place he stops, it's the next day, be Monday morning, he goes to the temple. This was his tradition, actually. When he, went, when he was outside of Jerusalem going to the other little villages, he would go to the synagogue because the temple was the headquarters in Jerusalem. But out in the other cities, you had synagogues, little kind of like little churches for Jewish people. He would always go to the synagogue and he would preach in the synagogue. But now he's in Jerusalem, so he goes to the temple. And you guys know the story. What's he find in the temple? Buying and selling religious goods. It's the first place he goes. Why, what were they doing? They were, this was the worst time of the year for this. People were coming into Jerusalem for a religious feast. They had to bring a sacrifice. I have to bring a goat or a lamb, but I don't want to bring a goat all the way with me on a 10-day trip. So the people in Jerusalem said, we'll, buy, we'll sell you a goat when you get here. Just come on in. We'll sell you a goat when you get here. And they would like triple the price so they could profit off. This is like buying a hot dog at a baseball stadium. What's a hot dog cost? $1.50? Except when you buy it at Citizens Bank Park, it's $11, right? Why? Because they can. You're trapped, right? That's what they were doing with religious paraphernalia. That's what they were doing with sacrifices. That's what they were doing with doves and goats and sheep. They were saying, well, you're stuck now. You've made this trip. You're going to need something. We're going to jack up the prices, And in addition, if you're coming from another country, you're going to need to exchange your currency. We're going to give you a really bad exchange rate. For your $10, I'm going to give you seven. And now you're going to have to go buy an overpriced 
sheep, goat, dove, whatever you need. Does that make sense? So they're turning the temple into this marketplace. People are coming there in genuineness and authenticity to worship God, and they're taking advantage of it. Well, Jesus sees this, and you guys know the story. He just goes berserk. He flips over the tables. He rebukes them. In one story, he makes a whip. I love that. He hand makes a whip. And he goes in, and he tears up the temple. Now, in reality, they tore up the temple. He's cleansing the temple, right? But to their perspective, he's making a mess. But from his perspective, you've made the mess. I'm cleaning it up. He drives them out and he says, and this is actually, it's just the next two verses. It's not on the screen, but I'll read it. Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out those who were selling. And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. This is the first place that he goes is to visit the people of God. He, Jesus, it's really interesting to me how frequently Jesus addressed entire cities. When he went to uh, his hometown and they didn't believe him, he addressed the entire city. He went to towns like Bethsaida and Chorazin. He said, it's going to be worse for you than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah because you, you saw the Messiah and still didn't believe. He addresses Jerusalem all the letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation are to the church in Sardis, the church in Pergamum, the church in Thyatira. Like, he addresses cities. Not First Baptist, not Spurgeon Presbyterian, not True Vine, but the entire city. Does that make sense? That's how he makes assessments and evaluations. It's not by denomination, it's not by even local church, it's by cities. That's how he handled it. I would actually say that any church has a greater connection to its other local congregations than to its own denomination. So a Presbyterian church in Philadelphia is more connected to a Pentecostal church in Philadelphia than to other Presbyterian churches, or at least that's the way it, I think that's the way it works in Jesus' mind, that it's based on locale and geography more than a shared doctrinal statement. So Jesus goes in, into the, uh, the temple. That's where the inspection begins. He's come to inspect the spiritual climate of the city. He starts in where, what should be a house of prayer, but instead is the merch table of a religious business. Uh, a friend of mine, m many of you know Jamie Fitt, uh, who has led worship here on several occasions, preached here on several occasions, uh, I think he nailed what the last year has been like for many of us because a lot of people, a lot of churches, I heard a lot of pastors say this, 2020, that's going to be the year of 2020 vision. I remember back in 2018, pastors starting to talk about, oh, what an opportunity for 2020 vision. We're going to reevaluate and reassess the vision of our congregations. We're going to see things clearly. We're going to see things as they really are. Jamie Fitt said this, a lot of people said that last year would be the year of 2020 vision. I think we got 2020 vision. The question is, did we like what we saw? Did we like what we saw last year? I th Jamie Fitt would say, and I would agree with this, and John Eric said something similar about, you know, almost a year ago. I think we did get a lot of clarity. I think a lot of stuff came to the surface. 
Did we like what we saw last year? Jesus did a big old inspection, right? We didn't recognize it for what it was, largely. He brought a lot of stuff up to the surface. So if put yourself in the shoes of these people in Jerusalem. If they knew what was going to happen in 40 years, do you think they would have changed their behavior? I would hope. Maybe they wouldn't, but I would hope, right? I think that we've just lived through an unexpected in, uh, in inspection. A lot of stuff has come to the surface, and we get to decide now, are we going to deal with these things that Jesus surfaced? Or are we just going to like brush this all under the rug and get back to normal? I'm so sick of that phrase. As much as I want normalcy, in some ways I don't. I, I want, to, here's what I want. I want to be able to go wherever I want without wearing a mask. But here's what I don't want. Dead, dull religion. Comfort-based, make me feel nice. Park my car. Don't challenge me. Don't confront me. That, I don't want that. Does that make sense? I don't think Jesus wants it. So, Jesus actually is all about inspection. He gives us multiple opportunities to address issues that he brings up in our lives. One of those is through communion. We're not doing communion this morning, but uh, I want to prepare you. This Good Friday, in five or six days, we will be taking communion. One of the commands surrounding communion is that we examine ourselves. If we judge ourselves... Jesus can judge us less harshly because we've already dealt with it. Just like if you take care of your health, your doctor doesn't have to be mean, right? If you brush your teeth, the dentist doesn't have to hurt you. If you change the oil in your car, your mechanic can do minimum maintenance, right? So when we take communion, this is an inspection or an examination. So this Friday... We will be taking communion. I want to give you a little heads up to be prepared for that. If, if you're here, if you're present with us, when we take communion, I want you to be prepared for that. Also, two Sundays from now, not next Sunday because it's Easter, but the Sunday after, that'll be April 11th, we will be taking communion again during our Sunday morning service. And generally, our tradition is we do it on the first Sunday of the month unless there's a holiday or something that would move it. But every time we go into communion, it's an inspection it's an investigation. It's an audit of our spiritual lives. We're supposed to examine ourselves. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I want to share with you one more thing that you can be preparing for. At the end of April, less than a month from now, April 23rd through 25th, we will be having a church-wide fast. It's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's going to be roughly 48 hours long. We've done church-wide fasts in the past. The purpose of this is not to see how tough you are or to make you feel guilty about anything. The purpose of this fast is, Jesus, we're showing up to be inspected. We're showing up now for the examination. We, we did anticipate, we are expecting that you want to deal with some stuff. We're bringing it to you now. And we want to set these things behind us so that when we go into the next phase of life, we have dealt with the issues that he's surfaced. 
Does that make sense? For us at True Vine, if our leadership team has kind of discerned, like, yeah, there is going to be a little bit of a turning of the page as the coronavirus becomes less of a concern and we are able to return to some previous practices and we're anticipating that phase and that phase is hopefully coming sooner and sooner and sooner. But as that comes, let's make sure that we turn that page hard and that we don't carry over some of the sin and the bad practices that came that, that were surfaced in that last season. Does that make sense? So when we do this fast, we'll be abstaining from food or other comforts for about 48 hours. That Saturday will largely be dedicated to uh, prayer and worship here at the church. It'll be about a six-hour period where the church will be open for you to come and go as you please. So I just want you to put that on your calendar, prepare for that, begin asking God, what do you want me to fast from, and what do you want to deal with? More importantly, what do you want me to deal with in here? Last thing I want to do. This morning on your way in, everybody got a palm branch, right? And the, I think you all know this probably, but the palm branch, or the, the frond, the, the leaf, this is so we can wave it and worship and, and be joyful and praise God, and that's what this symbolizes, and that's what it's supposed to symbolize. With your palm frond today, I would like to add a tissue. Because while everyone else was shouting joyfully, Jesus was weeping. And I kind of think these two things should go together. That the tissue with the palm frond is a reminder of the entire story. That we can joyfully, exuberantly praise Jesus. But also, let's make sure that our heart is where his heart is. That while he's weeping, we're not getting hyped. Does that make sense? So just up here in the front, I have one, two, three tissue boxes. I know this sounds silly, I get it, but I'm just for this one year, I'm asking that you would put with your palm frond a tissue to remind you that Jesus wept. He cried over the city of Jerusalem when he came in. So when you're ready, the team's going to lead us in one final song. While they're leading us in this song, I'm going to invite you to come up and just take your tissue and you know, put it with your palm frond or wrap it around or do whatever you need to do. This is a symbol. I'm not expecting you to cry and use the tissue, although that's great, but this is just to join your, your palm frond and to remind you of what this experience was like in its totality. Jesus, we remember that you cried. You wept during your entry into Jerusalem because you knew what the future held. You knew that you would be rejected. You knew that you would be crucified and that there were going to be consequences for all of that. Lord, we want to join you in your weeping over our city, over our own lives as individuals. We want to turn from sin. So we, we want to join with the disciples who welcome you into the city, but also join with you as you wept over the city, as you wept over sin, as you wept over rebellion, Jesus. Would you line our hearts up with yours? I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. While we're singing, you can come up and grab a tissue. Caught up in your presence 
just wanna sit here at your feet I'm caught up in this holy moment I never want to leave For blessing and Jesus, you don't owe me anything More than anything that you can do I just want you
Jesus, we ask that when it comes time for you to inspect us, Lord, we would be found pure in heart and righteous in your sight. And even if right now we are not, Lord, your offer to us is to come to you. You can cleanse us. You have made a way for us to come clean. Pray, God, that you would bring souls back to you. You would bring this whole city back to you, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. Thank you for making the way so that we are not stuck as slaves. God, we have a choice, and you want us to come out and and be free, Lord. So, um, yeah, thank you again, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. You are dismissed. Join us on Good Friday.